still in our series, Luke, Kingdom Come. Now, last week we saw the result of Jesus sending out the 70 disciples. Remember, he sent out the 70, and then they come back, and they're just kind of bubbling with excitement, and there's this, this theme of, of rejoicing that Luke highlights for us. And that theme, that, that backdrop of rejoicing, continues this week. Last week, the 70 disciples come back, and they're rejoicing because... Satan has been subject to them in Jesus' name. They have power over Satan and his minions, right? And then Jesus corrects them. And Jesus says, you're excited that you did these amazing things. What should really excite you, what should really cause you to rejoice, is the reality of your salvation. That your names have been written in heaven. Well, he's continuing that theme, that idea of rejoicing this morning in verses 21 to 24, not just telling them to rejoice in the reality they've been saved, but also to rejoice in how they've been saved. So look with me now at Luke chapter 10. Beginning in verse 21. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. In that same hour, He, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The word of the Lord, may you write its truth upon our hearts. Would you bow your heads with me? Well, Father, there is no better thing that we can do this morning than to ask, according to your gracious will, reveal yourself to us. Open the Scriptures to our minds. Impress their truths upon our hearts. We are asking You to send Your Spirit as You promise You will do in the midst of Your people and reveal Jesus to us. We ask this in His perfect, precious name. Amen. Well, back in the recesses of my memory, back when I was in high school, I was recalling as I read and prepared for this sermon my calculus classroom. I took AP Calculus my senior year in preparation for college, and there were, there were two posters that hung in the front of the room. There were two posters that, that kind of bordered the whiteboard. And so every once in a while, actually pretty frequently, our calculus teacher would have us go to the whiteboard and work out equations and, and do our derivatives, and, and, and chart the graphs that you kind of do during calculus. Actually, as I was thinking of this illustration, I kind of bemoaned the fact that if I had opened that calculus textbook this week, I would have no idea what any of it meant anymore. I've literally forgotten all of it. And that's okay. That's why we have calculators and, and people like James Beecher, right? But we would go between these two posters, and we would do our work. And, and there were two posters of famous people. On the one side was a poster of John Wayne, <laughs> and that was kind of quirky, but my calculus teacher was obsessed with the Duke. And so the Duke was on the right hand of the whiteboard, and then on the left side of the whiteboard 
was that famous poster, that famous picture of Albert Einstein. He of the crazy hair going all over the place and kind of the bushy mustache. And it was that picture of Einstein. And then that quote, that famous quote by Einstein, where he says, I want to know the God who created this world. I want to know God's thoughts. The rest, Einstein said, are just details. Now, my calculus teacher was actually a believer. He had been a, a missionary kid in Africa. He was one of my football coaches as well, and he, he helped to disciple a lot of us. And what he was doing with that in our public high school was putting this poster of Einstein next to the board where we would come and work out these mathematical equations. And he wanted us to remember and to see that Einstein, this mathematical genius, when he encountered those equations and those formulas, was compelled by the reality there must be a God. Isn't that an interesting thought? The irony of all that, though, is while Einstein admitted he couldn't embrace a pure atheism because of how his study of the universe left him continually confronted with the fact that there had to be something behind all of this, convinced that there had to be some sort of divine being, the irony is he actually still couldn't ever come to embrace the idea of a personal God much less Einstein certainly couldn't ever embrace the idea of the God who's revealed to us in Scripture and in the Bible. So for all of his brilliance, and Einstein is sort of the quintessential genius, right? For all of his brilliance and, and his theories of relativity, you know, E equals MC squared, and none of us have any idea what that actually means, right? For all of that brilliance, he felt convinced that God was real, and yet that brilliance and that just raw brain power still left him powerless to see God in any saving sense. That's a sobering thought. Which I think points us to the first thing we see Jesus saying in our text this morning. We are called to rejoice all over this text. But one of the things in verse 21 that he points out is that we should be rejoicing if we're sitting here knowing Jesus today because we were counted among the least. An ironic thing, right? Luke 21 says, In that same hour he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Knowing God, knowing God in a saving sense, isn't an issue of intelligence. It's not about the raw brain power, even of a person like Einstein, right? No, knowing God in that way is an issue of revelation. And that's why Jesus calls us to rejoice. Don't just rejoice that you're doing powerful things, he says in the 70, right? Rejoice that you've been saved. But don't just rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in being a little child. Rejoice in being the least. Now that's a foreign concept. I will admit, as a competitive person, it's an especially foreign concept. My competitive nature, maybe your competitive nature, it tells us the thing you rejoice in is being the best. In winning, in striving to win. 
You want to be the best either on the court or have, have the best GPA. Right? Nobody has those little bumper stickers, you know, my child is an honor roll student at such and such. Nobody says, my child is in the 50th percentile at Blue Valley Northwest. Right? Nobody's rejoicing in those things. We, we want to win. And even in kind of the watered-down competitive culture of participation ribbons, right? The idea is still to boast in being part of the game. Right? It's a totally different thing, what we see here, boasting in, in, in being the bench warmer. Not the wise and understanding. Not the top student. A little child. Innocent. Just getting the milk of the faith. But that's what Jesus highlights. The church, his point, the kingdom, the people that God is gathering in, the church isn't designed for tidy people. The church isn't designed for tidy lives so that we can come as tidy people with tidy lives and express how impressive we are to each other, right? Look how respectable and impressive I am. That's not the vision Jesus has at all. No, Jesus says, I rejoice that the Father saw fit to reveal the gospel to misfits and miscreants. To people who are stumbling their way to the door. And that's astounding grace. The kingdom of God isn't designed to be a meritocracy. You don't get into the kingdom, into the club. You don't become a member of this church or any church because you're the best. I'll never forget in, in, in college, I took a class on false religions and cults. It was, we had what was called J-term. And so for the month of January, you would take one class. Sometimes the J-terms were really hard, you know, advanced Greek. Sometimes I took snowboarding, which was great. Well, on one of them, I took this class on cults. And so one of the things we had to do is go and visit these, these different places. And so we went to these places of New Age worship, and we went to a Mormon tabernacle. And one of the places we went to was a church of Scientology. It was a very interesting experience, looking through their brochures. But what was fascinating was the location of the church of Scientology in the Twin Cities. The Church of, of Scientology was very, very strategically located in the heart of downtown. This part of downtown St. Paul that they were redoing and rebuilding, and it was glitzy. It had the Excel Energy Center where, where the NHL team, the Wild, played. Just a few blocks away, right next door, it had, it had the Children's Museum. Around the corner was the Fitzgerald Theater, and a block away, the Ordway Theater, and, and the Science Museum. This was a piece of prime, expensive real estate in the heart of downtown hoity-toity St. Paul. Scientology was being very careful about where they built that church. They purchased that property and built that building because they wanted cultural relevance. More than that, they wanted the people coming through those doors, by and large, to be people of influence and people of significance, people of means and wealth. If you ask about a who's who of Scientology, right? It's the wealthy and the famous. It's the Tom Cruises of the world. And the whole point and purpose of Scientology is you can come in, we'll, we'll show you the brochures, but to really get in, You've got to earn your way and you've got to pay your way. 
The only way you continue to progress is the more money you pay. It's a strange, strange system. But in Luke 10, we see that the kingdom of God is totally different than the whole ideology of Scientology. The kingdom of God isn't a meritocracy. It's not just for the best and the brightest. It's not an oligarchy. A system just for the few and the most important. The kingdom of God is a place of astounding grace. The kingdom isn't accessed just by people who are the most accomplished. It's not based on who you know or how correct and exhaustive your resume is, how impressive those references. It's not about the right education right, or the right degree or getting that education and degree from the right school. It's not about living in the right neighborhood, having the right pedigree. Jesus doesn't care if you were in the Talented and Gifted program in seventh grade, right? I was in the Talented and Gifted program. It's actually kind of embarrassing. But Jesus doesn't care about those things. He doesn't care about them at all. And he says, you should rejoice if you're like a little child. Which means it's about coming empty-handed and open-hearted. There's this inescapable, God-wrought humility at play in Luke 10. The 70 that get sent out on this initial mission, there's not like this special test Jesus gives them before he sends them out. And only those who score in the 98th percentile or higher get to go out. That's not the idea or the image that we get at all. These are run-of-the-mill people. They're fishermen and laborers and tax collectors. They're villagers and country folk. They're literally people from all walks of life. The reason they experience success is because Jesus empowers them. What Jesus says they held in common was that they didn't approach God as though he were a code to crack. Like he was some sort of Rubik's Cube puzzle to solve. Which is a really good thing, because I don't know about you, but I can't even get one side colored the right way on the Rubik's Cube, right? That's not how you get to God. He's contrasting this with the way the religious elite and the Pharisees seem to think that this whole idea of the Messiah is, is this riddle to puzzle out. And they know God better than everyone, so they know who the Messiah is supposed to be. So they get to decide if that person, if Jesus, is the Messiah or not. We have the knowledge. We have the wisdom. We have the understanding. The problem is, they don't have the revelation. They didn't solve God. Jesus says, you don't solve God. God reveals himself. I love how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Jesus and Paul rejoice that the Father saw fit to reveal himself to the least likely and the least deserving which means we are a rather unimpressive crew. 
And that's really good news. It's the great blessing of the gospel. Jesus explains exactly why we should feel humbled and rejoice in being least special. It's not just that we rejoice in being the least. He points us to the reality we should rejoice in God's gracious will. We should rejoice in sovereign grace. Keep looking with me. You notice how compulsively Luke is repeating this theme of rejoicing as we go through the passage? The NIV has a really helpful way of translating this verse, these verses. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. This verse is about the Trinity, the triune God, rejoicing together. What's even more remarkable, this is one of only two places in the entire New Testament and all the Gospels that we read about Jesus rejoicing over something. Isn't that astounding? And both of them are surprising. Both the places and the reasons. The other place it happens is in John 11. The event is the death of Lazarus. Jesus says he rejoices, he's glad, he's happy that Lazarus has died. Was he your friend? But he he rejoices because in Lazarus' death, now the disciples' faith can be increased because they will see Jesus and his power over the grave. This, This strange rejoicing in Lazarus dying. Here, another strange kind of rejoicing. Jesus says he's rejoicing. He actually says he's full of joy in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is stirring up this joy in Jesus. Why? Not because the 70 were successful in their mission. Right? Not even because in this group of followers, people are believing in him. No, he's specifically rejoicing that the people who are believing in him are doing it because God has revealed it. Even more, he's rejoicing that God has hidden the identity of the Messiah, hidden the arrival of the kingdom from some people, and revealed it to others. Jesus in the Spirit, is rejoicing in God's sovereign grace. In God's divine prerogative to open the eyes of whoever He wills. The point is, if you've been saved, it's not because you've kind of groped your way to God. Right? That's not the point that He's making. The people whose names are written in heaven aren't morally superior. Right? They're not ultra-tidy. They're not specially gifted. They didn't crack a special code in the Bible that all of a sudden showed them Jesus. No, no, Jesus says they're the ones who received revelation. Why? How? Because they were left-handed? Because they were a certain height requirement? Because of God's, because of the Father's gracious will. And that's how God designed salvation. Jesus says, It's actually impossible to know God unless the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then here's the kicker. This design of sovereign grace brings God, Father, Son, and Spirit, this this design that it would happen 
by God's grace, by, by God's sovereignly deciding, that design brings God immense joy. That's what Luke shows us. That's what the Trinity is celebrating here. And that should be instructive. When I watch a sporting event in our house, Lincoln doesn't care at all. He's just running around like a crazy person because he's two and a half, right? But Case and Sadie, invariably, when I turn on a sporting event, they will come and they will sit. And what's one of the first questions they ask? Who are we cheering for, Daddy? Right? Who are you rooting for? And, and the best part about that is Case actually cares. Like, he's interested. Sadie doesn't care. Sadie has no idea what's even going on. We'll be watching basketball, and she's telling Case, Case, we're cheering for the white soccer team. <laughs> you know, it's completely lost to her what's actually happening on the screen. But they don't care. They want to know who's Daddy cheering for. What's making Daddy excited? And then I'm going to cheer for the same ones. And then when they become teenagers, they ask, who are you cheering for, Dad? I'm going to cheer for the other team. <laughs> but when they're little, when they're little children, when they're still pure, <laughs> right? <laughs> but there is something precious in that. And that's a helpful reminder of what discipleship is meant to look like. That's part of what Jesus is showing them. Discipleship, in part, is about becoming more and more like Jesus, more Christ-like. It's about coming alongside each other in the body of Christ and discipling each other and sharpening each other. To, to what end? Obeying more of Scripture, right? To doing less bad things? No, ultimately, sharpening each other, coming alongside each other, with the purpose of laying hold of Jesus together. Striving to see Jesus with greater clarity, to, to be formed into the image of Jesus more consistently. And a major part of that is about having the heart of Christ. So the things that stir Jesus should stir us. What Christ loves, we should love. The things that He hates, we should hate. And so in this text, when we see Jesus rejoicing in something, part of the point he's making to the 70, to the 12, to all of us this morning, is we should rejoice there as well. That's part of what he's showing us. Now, I remember when I first started coming to grips with passages like this, here, here in Luke 10, in, in John's Gospel, in John 6, and in John 10, and other places, in, in Genesis, I'm going to take Abraham, this dude worshiping the moon, and I'm going to choose him. Right? Jacob and Esau. I'm going to take the younger. Right? Who's my king going to be? Well, bring Jesse's sons forward. Who's the least impressive one I can find? Okay, I'll, I'll take the runt. David, the little squirt. Romans, Ephesians. Again and again and again, these passages showing God's, God's sovereign choice and election and i will confess to you it was a massive struggle i did not like this idea of god i was encountering i chafed at the notion of, of god choosing to reveal himself to certain people it didn't seem right it didn't seem just this wasn't the god that i had known growing up 
And the problem was everywhere I turned in Scripture, passages like Luke 10 kept running into my face. I couldn't escape the themes. And slowly but surely, the Spirit, through the authority of God's Word, wrestled my heart into submission. And then an interesting thing happened. Slowly but surely, that submission submitting myself to the reality of, of God's sovereign grace turned into a sort of resigned contentment. Okay, I'm, I'm content that this is, is how God works. And then an even stranger thing happened. That contentment turned into worship. I didn't grind my teeth when I hit the passages. I didn't obediently read through them and it's just the way it is I started to have my affections for God stirred when I read these scriptures I started to rejoice that God would reveal himself to little children and misfits and miscreants what I came to realize is that this was beautiful and the reason I realized it's beauty was because I finally started to recognize I was someone who needed this kind of grace. I was someone who was that desperate for God. It wasn't as if I was a part of this, this whole pack of people searching for God and then, and then God's just arbitrarily picking a few people out and just resigning the rest to their fate. I had been part of a whole pack of people happily, blissfully ignorant of God. More than ignorant of God, intentionally ignoring God. I didn't like that view of myself, but the scriptures kept showing it to me. And Jeremiah the prophet asks, can the leopard change his spots? Spots being blemishes. Analogy being, can the sinner make themselves not sinful? Jesus agrees when he tells us, a diseased tree can't bear good fruit. Jesus explains, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Being an honest sort of fellow, I had to admit I had sinned a couple times. I wasn't stumbling around in the dark trying to find God. Paul was right in Ephesians 1 when he said that I've been dead in my trespasses and sins, that I've been following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air. We don't believe because we don't want to believe. Because we're trapped in the brokenness of our hearts. It's not just Paul talking about stuff like that. That was kind of how I kept it at arm's bay for a while. This is just Paul's thing. First of all, that, that's a very unbiblical way to approach the scriptures. Well, Paul is, is filled with this person called Holy Spirit. <laughs> And so if it's Paul's thing, you should kind of work to figure it out. But then I ran into Jesus in, in John 8, 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do, the devil, is to do your father's desires. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. That, that, that's hard to swallow. 
But Jesus tells us the reason people do not understand him in a saving way is because they can't bear to hear his word. It's not that they can't understand what Jesus is saying, but they willfully desire to follow their real father. Jesus speaks and says that they willfully plug their ears. Seeing that truth, that that is how humanity sits, left to ourselves. Seeing that changes how we understand this notion that God has revealed Himself. That God had to reveal Himself. And that it's a beautiful thing. When I came to see my own bondage to sin, and the way my will was twisted inward, I was overwhelmed by just the enormity and the necessity of the Son choosing to reveal the Father. I realized I was helpless without it. And I started to rejoice with Jesus at the magnificence of God's saving grace. And that's actually exactly where Luke leaves us this morning. Rejoice in being the least. Rejoice like the Trinity in God's sovereign grace. But don't stop there. Rejoice in Jesus Himself. Which is really another way of saying boast in Jesus. Those words are related. Rejoice and boast. Jesus turns to the disciples and He tells them, do you know how, how blessed you are to see the things you're seeing? Kings and, and prophets, David and his lineage, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Amos and others, they long to lay their eyes on me. They wanted to hear the things that I'm saying to you. Do you know how lucky you are to be around me? Now, there's a part of that that's a little unsettling, right? We instinctively dislike cocky people. Nobody likes to be around self-absorbed individuals. It's just basically universally true. But you think it's partly why it's a little natural to recoil a bit when we hear Jesus talking this way. But Jesus isn't being arrogant. What he's doing in this isn't some sort of narcissism. He's actually leading us into a deeper kind of joy. Listen again to 1 Corinthians 1. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see what's going on there? Because it's all owing to God's grace, not to your intelligence or your moral purity or your upbringing or your heritage, but just sheer, pure grace. You know what happens? Every single thing we could possibly boast in about our salvation is taken away. Who deserves all the credit? Who deserves all the honor? Who deserves all the fame? Who deserves all the attention and, and all the glory? It's not me. It's only God. It's all owing to His glorious grace. Which is the best news ever because that means 
we get to boast exclusively in Jesus Christ. And there's way more joy to be found in boasting in Jesus than in pointing to yourself. God's grace brings us to the end of our our self-absorbed reality. And it plants our identity. It establishes our joy in something that's infinitely more satisfying. In God Himself. And this idea is people being ravished with a, a better, sweeter, pure joy. It leaves Jesus exploding with eternal joy in the Spirit. And yet right here, I think, is where people sometimes stumble. Sometimes people have a hard time coming to grips with the beauty of God graciously choosing people based solely on His own discretion. But then once they do come to grips with that fact that the Scriptures are pointing us this direction, they can't get past it. They're no longer fighting against it, right? Now they're obsessed with it. They're just obsessed with this doctrine and, and this idea. And so they study it and they, and they plumb its depths. And it's, it's all they can talk about. The irony of ironies is that those who are chosen, despite being the least, begin to boast in the discovery that God chose them despite, despite the fact that they weren't special. They, they become so obsessed in this, this sense of God's sovereign grace that that's all they'll ever talk about. Why is it bad to talk about, about God's sovereign, saving grace? Because if all you're talking about is the doctrine, and you're never talking about or pointing to or rejoicing in the God behind the doctrine, you're missing the point. Good doctrine isn't designed to be an end in and of itself. It's designed to be used like a lens that brings greater greater clarity on the majesty of God. It brings God into sharper focus. That's what good doctrine is. You don't sit there with a lens like staring at the lens like, look how thick it is. It's like a bifocal too. No, you use it. And you look and you rejoice that you can see things more clearly. It's the same way with this. That's the blessing. Not puffed up. There's kings I wish they could see what I'm seeing. Isaiah kind of wishes he saw what I saw, heard what I heard. Now that is amazing, right? The youngest believer in this room, the most basic levels of faith, Jesus says here, sees and knows things that Isaiah longed to know. God's grace is astounding in that way. But the point of that isn't isn't to puff us up. It's not to pound our chests. It's to look and to ponder at the person that David and Abraham and Isaiah and Jeremiah long to know. To rejoice in Jesus. To breathe in the fragrance of Christ. To use Paul's language in 2 Corinthians. And that's exactly actually what Paul did. Paul spends that entire famous section of the the letter of Romans, right? Romans 9 to 11. Romans 9 to 11, he's unpacking this idea of of God's sovereign grace. 
what does he get done at the very end of chapter 11? Well, <laughs> you can clearly see that I am the most gifted student of Gamaliel. You can tell I've memorized my Hebrew scriptures well. Now he gets done with Romans 9 to 11. Explaining the awesome sovereign grace of God. And he worships. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Lord, we want to praise you. Lord, we recognize that we are able to praise you because you are gracious. Because it was your good pleasure that made you happy to reveal Jesus to people like us. And so, God, we praise you and we rejoice and we soak gratefully in your sovereign grace this morning. Lord, I pray that for my heart and for all of our hearts here, you would stir up worship and joy as we consider this profound doctrine. God, drive out pride and haughtiness. At the same time, Lord, humble our hearts to sit under your word. Most of all, Lord, let us rejoice in the glory of the gospel of your Son, Jesus.